From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word. Describe it. <laughs> From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. Camp drafting is the fastest growing sport in the nation. At a time of significant growth and substantial changes, Rowan Marks is elected as the president of the largest camp draft affiliation in Australia. Whilst we get a little insight into Rowan as a person, this interview isn't based on his life and we didn't get to talk about all the important people that play a role in it. I was more interested in chatting with Rowan about some hot topics that are raising eyebrows and frustration levels. I am not a competitor. I am, however, a secretary and all three of my businesses circulate around the camp drafting industry. So my point of view is a little different, but I think you'll find this interview to be insightful, real and to the point. From the saddle. From the saddle. Rowan Marks, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, Rowan, you are about to step into the president seat of the ACA, the Australian Camp Drafting Association. But first, let's learn a bit about you. Look, where's home now? Home right now is Aratula. I was brought up at Claremont. My parents owned a property called, well, with my father's brother called Winvic. My grandparents drew that place. And then we bought the place next door and our family moved over to there, Niagara. And I went away to boarding school from grade 8 to grade 12. Finished there in 86, 1986, and then did an apprenticeship as a diesel fitter. Right. So take me back to childhood. On the property, horse riding, cattle, was it mixed farming or just? Uh, Mixed farming, still is. My parents rode horses only to get the cattle in and to yeah, muster and do the okay. jobs. No sporting. Yep. So my grandfather, though, was a drover. Yeah, okay. On my mother's side and my grandfather on my father's side was a motor mechanic. He owned five motor mac shops before he um, drew Winvic. Right. So I've got the diversity both ways. Yeah, you do, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm wired more towards the horses and I've always – Loved them and dreamt about them and all that sort of stuff as a kid and, you know, come home from school and go ride on my own and all of that sort of stuff. So You know, like you said, the horses were used as part of the job, not so much for entertainment or fun or hobbies. At what point did you explore that in your life? As in the competition side or the... Yeah, just the enjoyment of it, you know, other than just riding of an afternoon. At what point did you sort of outsource... Well, the the local camp draft radio was Blur Athol for us, yes. which is 30k down the road. So we used to, or I used to ride my horse, not to do the camp draft, but to do the stick events in the pony club because back in those days, we used to do all that in the main arena on the Sunday. And um, so it was a bit of a crowd thing and Back looking at it from the outside now, but for us as kids, it was about training the pony at home and having him ready to crack when you got there and all that sort of stuff, which we we enjoyed. And um, so that then got a taste for, I guess, the competition and what could happen on in the horse sports part of it. Although then zero of that, so that was sort of grade six, seven maybe, and then none of that through secondary school because I was at boarding school. 
Where did you learn and develop your horsemanship skills? Because go back to that era, it wasn't really taught, was it? It was, you know, you you learned by watching. Yeah. I spent a lot of time with um, my grandfather and um, anyone that had anything to do with horses. I was a sponge in my mind watching and looking and soaking it up to um, – and I guess looking back – Riding about on your own, you work a lot of things out, what you can and can't do by doing lots of things you shouldn't do, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that would probably, you know, help me with, you know, the field timing and balance and stuff They, as you look back on now. Yeah. But, yeah, my father, though, not that he – well, he always rode, but, I mean, they, they they taught you the basic stuff on how to saddle your horse and get on and off and, you know, what to do when and, and, and how to go about it. And this, like, it's more or less the safety aspect of it. You don't yeah. do that because of this. And That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and plenty can be to talk to kids that are interested, can't they? When you've always got got the horse there to get on, and you go get it. So they, as a parent, you kind of feel obliged to assist where you can when they're sort of so keen on something. So and that that was a helpful part of those things. Yeah. So where was boarding school? Uh, St Brendan's in your Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So grade eight to. Um, Grade 12. So we played footy and cricket and um, uh, made the first in both of those and enjoyed that. That was terrific. Then when I left, went to do a diesel fitting uh, apprenticeship and I guess that was what led me into the horses because whenever you went in there, went anywhere, you were about the people that you worked with when you went out or whatever and all they talked about was shop and that didn't sort of float my boat. So then we sort of got into the, the camp drafting and there was just people from everywhere, like a long way away that had talked to you about what was going on in Barcaldon or Roma or Blackwater or somewhere, you know. So why diesel fitting? Well, good question. Uh, as far as mechanical stuff, about all I could tell you when I left school was where to put the water and the oil and the fuel <laughs> and pump the tyres up was about the story. And um, so I thought if we had a mixed farming operation, I needed to get an appreciation of the other. And in my mind, I could ride a horse and I could muster the cattle and I could do that to, to appease the needs of a business, so to speak. But once the machinery broke down to fix it, I was out of my depth. And we didn't have the technology then that we do now where you could Google on your phone or YouTube. Yeah. You had to have the bank of experience in your own brain or access to humans that you could get that from. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And if I didn't like it, I'd flick it and move on. But then the more I sort of got into it, the more I liked it, the more I found that I needed it or it was relevant to where we wanted to, where I wanted to be. So, and, it, and it's held me in good stead, yeah. Mm. yeah. I applaud you for doing that because so many 17-year-olds that, you know, grow up on the land, that's all they want to do is go back to home. And I know from, you know, I have an older brother and my mother and father said, you're not just going to work on a, a property, you are to do a trade. And he dug his heels in and, you know, it was a long four years for him, but like you said, it's paid off in the end. Yeah. And, I mean, I thought that. And, and I mean, because when, as you said, when you're 17, four years, shucks, I just left school. That took yeah. five. I've got to go through this again. Like, <laughs> saying, you know. Yeah. But in hindsight, it's a minuscule in time and and the knowledge out of that 
is everlasting. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, it's exponentially beneficial the whole way. You know, of course there's stuff you forget, but there's not. There's a lot of stuff you don't. And I guess back then doing a trade, everything was so manual. Yeah. Whereas now it's so digital. Yeah. So, you know, on farms there's so, you know, the machinery is so much older. Yeah. And that trade would just flow through. Yeah, and we were still in the in the um, phase of you had to work it out and adapt, like it would break down in the paddock and whatever yeah. at the mines and, and you'd have to fix them there. So it wasn't dissimilar to what we had to do you know, at home. So you did your trade through a mine? Yeah, blew out the mine, yeah, yeah. Do you find that a lot of those qualities, I guess, in education and workplace have helped you through life? Yeah, it's given it structure coming out of boarding school and then moving into a workplace that had structure. It, it, that most definitely was the you know a platform for consistency and doing stuff and and reward for consistency. And when it gets a bit hard, just keep trying and and you you'll find a way out of it or through it or over it or under it. But and yeah, that's that's been something that's helped me out a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So Rowan, uh, you're a qualified diesel fitter. At what point did you end, go down south? Um, two years ago, Morgan is now running Niagara and, um, well, I looked around uh, over time and th- there's plenty of people that stayed on their properties and the family succession thing t- in some experiences probably hasn't gone that well Yeah, and you find, you know, kids are arguing with their parents and yeah. this and that and the next thing. So I decided that that wasn't going to be my bottle of bottle of water so we, we decided to um, – give Morgan a go at running it and um, we'd go and start another business, doing other stuff and still young enough to go back and well and truly help him out or take over if he decides that this isn't for him and he wants to go do something different. We can always go back and... Yeah. So what was the place where you raised your family? Where we where uh, did you raise your family? At Niagara. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then um, um, so my like four kids were um, brought up there. And then um, they've all uh, moved on, like finished boarding school and done all those things, all got jobs and whatever. And so, yeah, so Morgan, yeah, he runs that side of it. Yeah. So what do the other kids do? Where are they? Um, Odette uh, works in a childcare uh, in Tamworth and she's been all over the country from with the same company from Toowoomba to Mackay to um, Hobart, all over the place with the same company. Loretta's at university. I think she's only got six months to go or 12 months to go, whatever, um, To as a teacher. And Dimity works for a firm in Mackay. She finished grade 12 last year and she works for a firm in Mackay. Um, uh, it's a bit difficult to explain, but the, she works for a – they um, do pilot projects for councils oh, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she works for a firm doing that. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. So – Fast forward, camp drafting, it's, you know, Morgan is very incredible at it as well and is following heavily in your footsteps. Is it crazy to think, you know, like the ACA is celebrating 50 years this year. You, I think, are you 53? Yeah, Yeah, this year I will be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. so you were three years old when that was established and now you're celebrating 50 years going into the presidency. Yeah, it, it it's a um, 
an honour to, to do a job like that and, and to put back into a sport that I've spent 35 years enjoying, as have, you know, our family. And, you know, it, it's, it's a nice family sport that everyone can participate in. There's a whole heap of people that you can meet and be friend and have as friends and all, you know, like-minded obviously because they like the horses and the cattle and the competition and, and in, in, in rural environment it gives you something to do in your spare time and that, you know, train your horse or you can take it along and then exhibit it. So 35 years ago when you first started camp drafting, paint me a picture. Okay. Um, big, big novice. Um, Cold morning, blur apple, ninety in it, <laughs> ninety in it, sixty in the in the maiden, yeah, and they were big numbers. Started eight o'clock when it warmed up a bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sleeping in the back of a truck, yeah. yeah, and those that were wounded from the night before, they just scratched and tacked <laughs> onto the end. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. No, it doesn't. No. Um, you know, and and all variety of horses from long manes and bushy tails, yeah. and, and it was a, like a fun gathering, carnivaly sort of experience. Having said that, there were still people that um, were very, very competitive, and special in my mind because they were the people I aspired to be like, and uh, in comp- in the competition side, you know, people like Charlie Floor back in those days was was very prominent in, in our sport, you know, very, um, what's, what's the word, appreciable minds. You, you looked at those people and what they did and try and emulate their, you know, styles and different things, although that's changed a lot these days. Absolutely, but, yeah. But, you know, they were the successful humans at the time doing well. Yeah. So one day, two days? Uh, one and a half, two maybe, but everyone was jiggered off by lunchtime Sunday. So Saturday, we'd turn up Friday night and be gone by Sunday lunch or whatever. Roads weren't as good. And no, that's exactly right. <laughs> the trucks They're, were different. Yeah, <laughs> trucks were different. Roads weren't as good. You know, the mum had to cook to go away and sweep the truck out to camp in the back. And, yeah. and now they are such mammoth events to host, aren't they? They are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's, the, that's the, I guess, the hurdle we've got to jump over currently is is fitting all the people in that want to participate. Yeah. So let's touch on that. Um, I recently read your write-up in the latest ACA magazine and, and you spoke about your frustration around the terminology that people are using to describe, I guess, a certain um, group of participants. Now, what is it? Let's Let's take a step back. What is it do you think that is creating so much frustration around this at the moment? Well, people are paying membership, nominating for a camp draft or more than, and then don't get to participate for whatever the reason. So, and and generally the reason is a secretary has to fulfil the requirements of cattle that they've got and they just can't pluck them from anywhere to have everybody come. So they need to or have a requirement to make restrictions and unfortunately everyone can't participate. So how they do that and what they prioritise for their individual committee is totally up to them. So those that don't get in consistently, it becomes difficult for them, obviously. And and then how we 
get around that or over that or educate people to understand what goes on there, that's a work in progress. So, Rowan, what do you believe is the foundation of this sport? Well, the foundation of this sport was a competition back, way back, before the 50 years that we started this association with horsemen displaying their capacity to have a relationship with a horse and and to chase a beast or cut a beast out and chase a beast around objects and have somebody decide who was the best at it. Yeah. So now I guess I see the foundation as it takes a committee, it takes a cattle donor, it takes cattle, it takes a safe facility and you cannot host and build an event if you don't have those four aspects. 100%. Yeah. 100%. So currently, you know, the hot news is, um, you know, the rise in affiliation fees and the rise in membership prices and like you just said, it's about navigating around that. And I personally don't see how ACA can do a blanket, you know, this is what we advise for committees on because each committee is so different. Their cattle come from, you know, all walks of life. They're trucked, they're walked, whatever it might be. So no no set of rules are going to apply to any two committees, are they? No, correct. So I guess is it more about the everyday competitor? Let's The everyday competitor covers everybody. Let's, let's not group anyone. Is it more about everyone understanding that those membership fees actually contribute to the running expenses of the affiliation to entitle you to have a run a run at an event? Is it more so coming at it from that angle as well? Do you think that we're losing scope of that? Well, everybody's got a different opinion. So one answer doesn't fit all. And, and, and as you said, it's so varied. The, as far as an association goes, the association has a requirement to, in inverted commas, not go broke. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So they have fees, they have wages, they have insurance, they have a whole rasp of things that, that has to be paid for. And we have a range of incomes, but primarily is our membership now and, and our sponsorship and our committee fees. That's about horse registration, but that's not a whole lot of money. But they're the things that we need to obtain income from to run an association. Now, where I think people are getting a little offside is that for a very long time, the management committee of the ACA have done a terrific job of keeping membership so low. The tangent that everything else has gone up, the ACA haven't remained in step with that. They've kept it low to appease the foreseen requirements of of people that wanted it low. Trucks have gone up exponentially in 50 years. Every fuel's gone up exponentially. Horses have gone up. We don't have to go through it, blah, blah, blah. The ACA fees have not gone up at that rate, yet our expenses have gone up at that rate. And I don't think people are, people are seeing it for what it is. At some point, you can't have be paid wages of 30 years ago and attempt to do the jobs of the current 2022. I mean, 
we could buy a brand new Toyota when I left school for twenty thousand bucks. I don't know if you can buy much of a one for a hundred now. Like I mean, no. yeah. and 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 our and our affiliation fees haven't matched that at all. And I, and I, I'm a little disappointed that people force it or blame it on an IT experience or whatever else when the requests have come from members for these things. So to deli- deliver on them, someone somehow has to financially make it viable and work. Now, people can criticise as much as they like, which is their opinion and they're allowed to, the decisions made by a management committee that are paid zero in wages. And they come from all over the, the country to have meetings to decide on what goes on and you've been and seen how many come to a meeting all at their own expense. You know, I, I'm secretary for our local camp draft committee and I have been for eight years. Um, I was secretary for our local show society for seven years. I'm finding that as we go forward, there seems to be a high percentage of society that are entitled, that feel like they're entitled, and that everyone wants something for nothing. And they truly are losing scope of what it takes to do what is done, no matter what that job is. You just touched on that, you know, these decisions are made by management committee that are paid zero dollars, as in zero dollars out of those membership fees, affiliation fees. None of the, that money goes to any of these membership committees. So all the meetings that are held, it's their own time, their own travel, um, you know, and they've all got their families own and accommodation, businesses. Own yeah. accommodation, their own businesses, the time they spend away from it to going and, and exactly what you're saying, attempt to make the best decisions possible with 25 people in the room. So you've got a very broad spectrum of, my, of ideas and very robust debate to get to a point where this is the outcome. Do you feel like there's a fair, what am I trying to say? Do you feel like there's a a fair scope across that table as in, you know, everyone can see everyone's opinions no matter at what level they compete at? Ah, for sure. In the management committee meetings? Yes, I do. It, 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 um, it most, the level of competitor isn't relevant to the input that a human has at management committee, a lot of times conversely. We have three people that are very active, very, very active in our management committee. They don't ride a horse at a camp drive. And, and they're very ones ahead of a subcommittee. And, and so, oh, two are. And so, yeah, I think it's I, – I, the only way you get it broader is by having more people. We've got 45 you know, who comes, comes. We get between 25 and 30 at a, at a management committee meeting, obviously somewhere in Western Australia, can't come to everyone, whatever, and people are busy. And, yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it's a very, very um, diverse group with very diverse opinions. And when they've got, as you know, with rural people, when they've got an opinion, they will voice it if they think strongly Absolutely. enough about it. And thanks to social media, it's giving it's given everyone a microphone and an audience at the same time. Hundred percent. From the saddle. From the saddle. 
Connected to rural communities and farming families, the team at Hewitt Consulting have a unique understanding and ever-growing portfolio of rural digital and marketing designs. The most reputable marketing and design business in rural Australia. And a few sneaky ones overseas. Logo designs, bull sale catalogues, marketing material, custom trucker caps and merchandise, horse adverts and a whole lot more. Caitlin and Robin understand that each project is as unique as the business it's for. Contact them today. www.hewittconsultingco.com.au Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the saddle. So, Rowan, do you think that the sport is being divided, whether it's intentional or not? Do you feel like there's a divide there that needs to shift back? No, I don't think there's a a divide. And and this is initially one of the main aims I personally have is to make management committee decisions more transparent so that people that don't potentially understand how we got there, but only the outcome. There's many mitigating, you know, effects on a decision. And and if you don't know all of those, you can be very swayed on where, why the decision landed there because it affects you with your personal interest and it doesn't work for you. Don't worry. That would have been voiced somewhere along the discussion line that and raised. I just, I don't think it's being divided. I think there's a group with, with social media, how it is now, that's very quick to react on decisions without actually weighing up, you know, from an association's point of view, what we need to do to initially survive and give deliverance on, on our decision-making, be it rules or how it affects people or numbers of runs or whatever it is, you know. There's a lot of contributing factors that come into, you know, the ACA every single day in in terms of whether it's rules or legislations or anything like that. Camp drafting is so big and it's grown so quickly that at an affiliation level, you've had no choice but to try and keep up with that. And, And by doing that, some hard decisions have had to be made because ultimately, in 50 years' time, you still want the ACA to be standing. And, you know, no matter if Mrs. Kafoops down the road doesn't believe it's the right decision, as an affiliation, you guys are making the decision you believe is to be right at the time. Correct. And, and I mean, with, with, the, with very considered approach on the effects it has on everybody, it's not a decision-making process for the top riders it's certainly not a decision-making process for the beginner rider. It, it, it's got to be a balance. And because that scope's so wide, it's a difficult, difficult process. And we don't want to turn anyone away. However, we do need sympathy and, and considerations for outcomes when you've got to try and have everybody Involved and, and have an experience for everybody that's positive. And, and we're not about negativity. It is about positivity that's got us this far and will continue to. So in your write-up, you, you express your frustration around, you know, the term elite or big dogs when, re- when referring to 
the top competitors, so to speak. So I think what I got from your article was, you know, the general feel at the moment is that all these rules and, you know, whatever is changing in the ACA is to suit the top competitors. Yeah. What, what, what I felt there, Caitlin, was that there's a perception out there by some people that potentially the top 10 riders don't ever miss out on a camp draft and, and they're never on a waiting list. That's totally incorrect. That's straight off the bat. However, what my point was, was that on doing some research about some of the, on some people that have made phone calls to the office and written letters about their displeasure in not being able to get into a camp draft and whatever, there's a number of those or a percentage of those that don't do anything with the exception of pay their membership attempt to get in by nominating and then, in inverted commas, um, give us adverse commentary on or negative commentary on social media. And what I wanted to say was or, or make well known was that what the lengths that these people go to, they do get on waiting lists, make no mistake. So it's just a loosely termed phrase to say that they always get in because they they seriously don't. However, their contribution back to the sport is huge. So when you're in an area that somebody's contributing to the sport at, at a level that they do, when secretaries are prioritising who gets in, I imagine, because I'm not a secretary and I don't have to do that, but I'm imagining that it's difficult to not allow those people in with the contribution that they do to the sport in their local areas? Well, I'm going to talk personally as a secretary and at a committee level. The competitors that you also, you allow in also add a dynamic to your event. Make no mistake, they do. Correct. And and that's, that's not a bad thing. That's like, to me, that's a good thing because you want a good dynamic at your camp draft. So then people walk away and think that was a bloody great weekend and we just paid $800 a head to go and have eight runs, you beauty, right? Also, as a secretary, I look at who swings front gates, who's at my door saying, thanks very much for a weekend, you did well. However, I'm finding there seems to be so much more or so many more phone calls from competitors to say, nominated for your draft, I've got in, paid my noms, but I can't make it on the Friday, I've got work, so I need you to do my draws, make sure they're Saturday and Sunday. There seems to be such a, it's like, hang on, no, I'm sorry, I'm not actually going to accommodate. I know at Theodore last year, I think I had probably 20, 30 competitors do that to me. So as a secretary... To competitors, I say it is actually also what you give back to that individual camp draft. Not so much the entire sport because not everyone can donate cattle. Correct, correct, for sure. And make no mistake, I truly believe that you are contributing as soon as you pay a membership fee. You you have just contributed to an expense of some sort and, yes, you are entitled to that. However, start thinking about how you can help and make the runnings of this event a bit easier. 
Caitlin, we're not all members of the ACA, aren't all cattle producers or horse producers or feed producers or anything to do with that side. We have solicitors and bakers and a whole mechanics and a whole range of people. Which makes it great. Exactly. So they can certainly contribute by if something needs fixing, here's my phone number, ring me, I'll come and fix your generator for you. Like, I mean, to be able to have people about that you could call on, like is, I imagine as a secretary and running an event, which of course we were on the committee for, I don't know, Blur Athel for 20 years and, and Clermont for 30 years now, to have those people come along and know that you can call on them in a crisis or when something happens is terrific. They don't necessarily have to go and tail cattle out or, I mean, if we're a bit short at the bar and there's plummy people everywhere and someone caps you on the shoulder yeah. and walks in and says, I'll give you a hand. Yeah. I mean, how thankful are of those people? They can recognise a need, get off their backside, go and do it. Like, I mean, they're the real champions in the sport and they're what I'm talking about, put back and don't take away. And as we all know, running a turnout, it, when things, like you said before, and people make it more difficult than it need be, that's also recognised and very difficult to fit them in next time round when there's other people wanting to play. And, and I don't know whether it's society or the, the more recent generation, but obviously people aren't aware of that. Or, or, and this is the transparency thing that I'm talking about that people need to understand. 100%. I was raised in a, in a family where you were on committee organisations and you donated your time, whereas I think that is being lost as we go forward in society and I'm finding that no one wants to donate time anymore. And, and we just need to take a step back and remember what it takes to put these events on. And like you said before, consider what goes into the events, the decisions made behind the scenes at, a, at an association level. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's interesting to hear your side as the president going into it. Uh, I, I'll, I'm gonna use, going to use this little phrase or paragraph uh, uh, in, in my address at the annual general meeting, but I'll, I'll put it on the podcast for you because I think it's a, it's a startling reminder of exactly what you're talking about. Currently, <clears throat> there's 45-odd people on the management committee and we've had the expressions to nominate, which finished, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, each zone had vacancies, okay? There's 7,500, give or take a few, members today. Two people with all the negative commentary on social media, two members that weren't already on the management committee applied to come on it to give us a hand. Why do you think that is? Well, that's the question that I want to ask around the place and if, we're, if the negative commentary is that we're doing such a bad job, why aren't there more people coming to give us a hand? If, it's, if, we're doing, if, if management's doing so poorly in the social media sphere, like, why aren't people helping? And, and, and I don't know the answer. And, and, I'm, and I'm feeling that that's also coming back into the committees. It's the same old ones that do the same old job and 
no one else new comes along to to lend a hand. The ACA office finds the same thing. And they, and you're right. I think it might be a generational thing that they're just not up stumping, rolling their sleeves up, and say, "I'm here to to give you a hand." And maybe it is that they just want to take out of it what they can. I don't know. I, I'm I don't know. I'm at a loss to put my finger on it, but. It's obviously, and you're saying it as well, a consistent issue across the board. Oh, absolutely. It's not just in camp drafting, but unfortunately, camp drafting seems to have such a a big spotlight on it at the moment because it has shifted so quickly, so fast, and and especially the rise in membership fees and that, which I'm sure are very warranted. Um, I'm sure they are. I I will be honest and say at a committee level, when, you know, our affiliation fees have increased $1,300, just like that, we kind of went, holy crap. Like that that was a bitter pill to swallow because it was so big and we knew it was increasing and we don't use Camp Draft One and we don't use your insurance. Like we don't have our own, but there was no other option. And at a small draft, which we are a small draft, it was, holy crap. But as a businesswoman, I understand that these things happen and they have to happen to keep going forward because it's almost like opening a shop up and not selling any stock. Correct. And and a bit of a bit of the and I can't I won't go into de- detail to create debate, but the a bit of the discussion around that was as you alluded to at the start of the conversation, so much so varied was taking up so much office time to give deliverance to each individual committee. So to go back a step, the management committee make the rule. The office follow the rules and can't step outside the lines, can't give any discretion. They're not allowed to. Yeah. So then when you have 180 committees, some of which are having two events a year and they want to change the dynamic around and pay for this or that, they go to the office. When the office can't deliver them a categorical answer, it goes to the executive. So then it goes to the three vice presidents, the treasurer and the president to find out whether this can be allowed. The time that was chewing up for these people that aren't being paid, it was a full-time job delivering answers for committees on what they could and couldn't do when the rule was there black and white, but they wanted to change it for their own, but because of this. Oh, but gee, but they did that, so why can't we? And we are not $250,000 executives that are paid to sit there to deliberate, come up with answers that are credible for every single question. And I will say in the ACA's defence, every time I've needed to pick up the call and speak with the girls, they were there. And I did have a situation where I needed the ACA to step in last year, and they did. So. You know, I, I guess I'd be cranky if that wasn't there, but that is there. The support is there, and yeah. and that's a good thing. Yeah, and that's 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 what the girls in the office are all about. They're all about trying to help to the best of their ability that they can. People get cranky with them because they won't give them the answers they want, but they're not allowed to because they're stepping outside their scope. And to be a bit frank, the executive battle to change too much as well because what we're really saying is 
all the other 45 or oh, 35 or 25, whatever it comes to a meeting that have made this decision, we're just saying, well, your decisions don't count anymore. We're just going, well, that's not the way that works. That's diminishing their worth when they've come all the way there, sat there for two days to come up with a decision and then in two minutes, three follows, go and change it. Like that's not how this works. So you just spoke about, you know, the 7,000 plus members and, you know, the nominations called and there were two nominations for management committee. What made you nominate? Well, I was excited about a lot of things that um, Huey was, Huey Philp Mm -hmm. was um, doing and what he'd done and I thought it was on a, on a, on a good path. I didn't go in there with an objective to change anything or do anything or whatever. I went there with an idea to put the association's hat on and try and assist in any way I could on giving some deliverance on the stuff that was going on. And and a bit of that was the, um, you know, they were, it was in the infancy stages of trying to come up with a computer program to do a lot of things for us. Big changes, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and I mean, a lot of those things are way over our head. And and so we've got to be guided by professionals and then, you know, what sort of professional have you got when you don't know what sort of professional you've got? Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly, yeah. It, it's a trick. Yeah. Like, and, and I wanted to be part of that and, and, and help, you know, there's definitely going to be peaks and there is definitely going to be troughs. And I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be part of when it works good and I want to be part of when things don't go well to help to explain yep. explain where we've come from and what we've done to get to this. And, you know, I think everybody on the, on the management committee has. There's, there's a lot of people that have come on in the last two or three years that weren't on there and, and I think it's really going in a good direction personally. That's my personal opinion. 35 years ago when you started camp drafting, did you ever think it would be to this scale and you would be stepping in as president? Oh, no and no. No on the scale and, and definitely no as, as the president. I didn't even, haven't been even on the management committee that long and because I, I always had a reasonably, an, an ear within a lot of people because I knew them really well within management. So any concerns that I might have brought up were getting, you know, aired at, at that level and so I, you know, didn't participate but I, I, I felt that now was the time that probably did need that and someone that's probably, you know, in the last probably third of their career or half of their career that's got some experience on the history of where we've come to, or so from, to, you know, over that period of time that can sort of maintain the history in that management because a lot of people don't go that far back or if they are, they're, they're off, like as in they've retired from it is what I mean. So, Rowan, what, what value do you believe you'll bring to the table as president? Uh, I, I'd, I'd like to bring, um, not that there hasn't been in, their, in the past, it, it's not saying anything negative about what's gone on before, but I think we're in an age now displayed through social media that people need to be informed. And, and they want to be informed and they want to want, want to know what went on yesterday, last night. They want to know what went on today, tonight. And people don't 
read newspapers much anymore. They find it out on the news feed on their phone. So for us to be relevant in that sphere, we need to be immediately more transparent after bigger de- when bigger decisions are made in an attempt to take out the inverted commas shock factor yeah. <laughs> of anything that may change in a dramatic way that affects people. And, and you know, we didn't see, we, we didn't anticipate the blowback to be as strong as it was on fees, although we knew there would be some. However, we were at a point that, like, I think the blowback would be exponentially bigger if we went broke and put out a new feed that the ACA has gone broke. That's the flip side, right? So, so yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, um, so do we take this hit and in an attempt to, you know, mediate the, the change? Um, and, you know, like since we've made that decision, you know, the CPI is now 3.5% or 3.6% or 7%. So the whole world in Australia anyway has is, is – Inflation's gone up by three and a half percent, so we're already behind the eight ball again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's not a forecast for what's coming in the future, but I'm just stating the <laughs> yeah, facts of play exactly. is yeah. where we are now. You yeah. Know? So anyway, that's that's what we're living with. As an association, did you find that a lot of members didn't renew because of that, or have pulled out? No, no, not not to a scale that was like holy crap, we didn't. No, no, yeah. no is a short answer to that. Um, although there will be some, and you know, to draw the analogy, like no matter how try, how hard you try to eat the biscuit, you will drop crumbs on the floor. Yeah. And, you know, we're just trying to mediate that. But having said that, we don't want to drop the whole biscuit either. And so that was a range where we need to be. And people can claim that it's this or that, but holistically it's not. It, it's the whole deal that where we need to be, you know. Well, it's an incredible industry, um, not only camp drafting, but the whole horse industry. It's It truly is. And it's um, it's something to be said, you know, to the competitors, to the horse breeders, to the trainers, to the hay growers, the affiliations. It's, it is going strength to strength. And I am very excited to see what you will do sitting at this table and we will be very watching very closely and I thank you for your time. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you very much. It was um, great to be on the podcast of Savo. Thanks for inviting me. No worries, Ron. Thank ta, you. Ta, thank you. Thanks to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications. From the Sound.